here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. Welcome, everyone. I am Benjamin Day. I'm Stephanie Nakajima. And this is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs health care. This week, we have an exciting guest and non-conventional topic. We're going to cover actually a lot of topics. It's our first mailbag episode. And we have with us joining us today, Rose Roach, who is the executive director of the Minnesota Nurses Association and a longtime champion of Medicare for All. We actually knew Rose back from when you were an organizer in California and you were the co-chair of Single Pair San Joaquin. So welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. <laughs> and I feel like since we have you here, we have to give a couple of shout outs. One, we have to shout out Jerry Katz, yes. who is an organizer at the Minnesota Nurses Association. She's also a board member of Healthcare Now, so she's one of our bosses. And she's a writer for the podcast. So thank you, Jerry, uh, for all your organizing work on single payer, but also everything else she does for Healthcare Now. And I swear we didn't plan this, but we booked you, Rose, last Monday, and then later in the week, we found the exciting news that Representative Betty McCollum from Minnesota was going to be the newest and most recent co-sponsor of the Medicare for All Act, and I suspect you may have had a hand in working with her on that. Well, we would certainly like to think so. She's literally my congresswoman. Um, and oh, so, yes, I live in her district. And we have been at this with uh, Representative McCollum for a while now. So, and it was interesting because last week was Nurses Week. And oh, we were yeah. doing lobby days with our uh, congressional and United States senators. Um, and of course, Medicare for All was one of the major issues we were lobbying on. And when we lobbied her staff on Monday, um, he sort of intimated that we were going to be very happy by the end of the oh. week. Um, so <laughs> we were awful glad to hear that uh, she, you know, she took some time to go sit down with Representative Jayapal and talk about some of the issues and concerns she had. And she got those resolved. And now she's on the bill and Lord knows her district supports Medicare for all. So this is wonderful. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks for doing that good organizing work. And today's episode is our first mailbag episode. So we, we let people, we emailed our list at Healthcare Now and asked anyone who wanted to have a question answered on the podcast, submit a question. And we got approximately 5 million questions. Most of them are really, really good. And I feel terrible that we're not actually going to have time to get to all of them. So we kind of picked nine or 10 that were kind of representative of different handful of topics. Uh, but the one I wanted to start with, I think, is is interesting because it connects to Rep. McCollum. Um, you had told us that one of her big concerns was how Medicare for All might impact the Indian Health Services because of the sovereign tribes in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. So we have a question uh, from Jordan Centers in Illinois that I'm going to direct first to you, Rose. And Jordan asks, how does insurance work with the Indian Health Service? Native Americans have the highest rate of uninsurance at 22%. Is that because they have some services covered free by the IHS? Why would those who are covered by the IHS need to get insurance at all? So good question. 
Yeah. So a couple of things with that. Um, I, I had to learn a little bit more about when she expressed her concerns about, you know, absorbing IHS along with the VA and TRICARE into the Medicare for All system. And of course, I think HR 676 just immediately brought them all together. And then when Representative Jayapal wrote the bill in, it was HR 1384, there was a five-year moratorium where they would stay as separate systems and then they would be absorbed again into the Medicare for All system. And for Representative McCollum, it was really important, as you noted, for tribal sovereignty and treaties, to respect treaties with Native Americans, and for them to be able to continue to basically oversee and run Indian Health Services for their community. And what I think what we always were most focused on was making sure, I mean, Indian Health Services, a lot of the issues, they're not funded, right? They're not funded to the level of the need. And that's true with the Veterans you know, Administration as well. And so for us, we were like, well, okay, let's figure out how to allow, allow that to happen. But to make sure that they still get the funding they need, let's just treat them as a provider under Medicare for All. And so Jayapal, um, in meeting with McCollum, did uh, remove the more and Indian Health Services will now stay independent. It's also true that there is, unfortunately, a significant portion of the population of Native Americans who access healthcare actually through Medicaid, uh, as opposed to Indian um, Health Services, and they would see a much better access to healthcare under Medicare for all than the Medicaid system, which is, of course, set up not so well, right? If for lots of different reasons administered by the state and not, again, funded properly. And, and then there's even just the racism involved in the creation of that system itself. So hopefully, you know, I think that she feels really good about this and, um, and that this will actually get funding where it's needed, you know, to the tribes to be able to provide that healthcare through the Indian Health Services. And so that's a good concern to to have, and I'm glad that Rep. Jayapal has been addressing it. Interesting, very side note here, but to Jordan's question about do Native Americans get counted as being insured if they have access to Indian health services? I actually didn't know this at all until I looked it up, but apparently starting in 1998, the census started counting people who access Indian health services as uninsured. Previously, they had counted them as insured, unless they have a separate source of insurance. So interesting side note there. Mm -hmm. But uh, another question came in. This is, I guess, a question that any of us could answer. But this is from Lori in Florida. And she wrote, I'm 62, was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, breast cancer, and then COVID. Not having Medicare, my less than stellar insurance paid very little on my claims. I've had to file Chapter 7 bankruptcy because of all my health issues. Why is it taking so long for Medicare for All? The pushback from commercial insurance needs to be addressed. I mean, I'll start, but this is just like, these are the situations that are so sickening to me that we tolerate in America. Um, this is the whole reason that I have devoted my life to Medicare for All. And Laurie, we cannot win this fast enough. And probably for you, you can't make it to 65 fast enough, which is the whole reason we need to expand Medicare. And obviously we need to improve Medicare. So it has better coverage. We're going to be talking more later about kind of the actual organizing strategy of how do we win this as fast as we possibly can. But thank you for sharing your story. I think it's a powerful story. I hope that our legislators are listening to, to you and, and everyone else like you. So I don't know if anyone else wanted to chime in on that. It, um, it is about, as you say, the commercial insurance, right? I mean, it's just about really our political system. And it is something that I've said for a long time is, there are days when I think none of us should fight for any of the issues we care so deeply about other than campaign finance reform. 
<laughs> and getting to, you know, public financing of our political system uh, so that we can actually have people get elected to, you know, to office on what they believe in and they can support it and they don't have to worry about all this money that has to come in and re-election and everything else. And they're able to just do what's right for the American people. And so I agree, it do, it's not getting here fast enough. We've been working on this. Well, I mean, my goodness, we've been talking in this country about you know, some sort of a national health program for a hundred years, practically. We should have did. We should have done it after World War II, when the rest of the you know world was beginning to adopt a system that would recognize healthcare as a basic right, and we didn't do that. And we are at a moment, I think, in history where we could make up for that now because we're coming out of a 100-year pandemic, or hopefully we are. Um, and if anything has exposed the the horrors of this system, it is what we have just gone through over this last year. So it is time for our elected officials to stop with this nonsense about feasibility and um, all of their silliness and just do what they know is right and fix it. I'll just add to, to that, which I, I know I agree with all of what you both just said, Ben and Rose, but the workers have never won in our history. We've never won against an enemy like health insurers before. And so it's, um, you know, the reason that it's taking so long for Medicare for all is because it's really a test of like power that we haven't quite gotten there yet. Right. And I think that the upside of that is that once we do amass that kind of working class solidarity, then we're going to win all the other stuff that we're fighting for too, right? So all the other, you know, income inequality and, you know, global transglobal rights and trade and all the other things that we fight for. And so, you know, yes, medic the fight for Medicare for all is taking a long time, but we're building, I think, an infrastructure that's able to resist the corporate power. So the next question, get back to my word doc here, is from Heather Stockwell in New Hampshire. How would Medicare for All affect hospitals? And let me just put the little caption up here. And how will they stay up and running, especially rural hospitals? So in New Hampshire, we're seeing many rural hospitals closing their doors. And my own, this was shocking to me, my own local hospital is fundraising to me while I'm on hold for my doctor's office. Or you're like on hold to like contest a bill or something, right? <laughs> and the hospital is like, can you do Unbelievable. <laughs> so the irony, I think, of this is that, you know, Medicare for all would actually be transformative for hospitals. But because of the corporate influence we were just talking about, there's actually a perception that socialized medicine or whatever would actually put hospitals under. And, and so, you know, they've actually been able to so decide the terms of this debate that they have created something that should really be a benefit for us, that Medicare for all would, would actually fund hospitals equitably and fairly and has turned it into Medicare for all as threatening hospitals. <laughs> um, so the reason that it would be transformative for our hospitals is it would fund them, you know, by their value to the community rather than their profitability, which is how they're funded right now. So, you know, in a market-based system like the one we have, if hospitals aren't profitable, they don't specialize in high cost procedures or whatever, but they provide uh, necessary care to the community, even if it's the only hospital in, to treat the community in a particular area. And this often happens in rural communities or urban settings with safety net hospitals, it will, it will go under if it's not profitable. And in Medicare for all systems that you see around the world, the, the government looks at, you know, where do we need to make sure that, you know, citizens in this area can get care in this area, and they apportion funds to make sure that even if 
this hospital is not bringing in the same revenue or whatever as a hospital in a big urban area or whatever, then they will still get all the funding they need to deliver the care to those people in that area. And so I think this is actually a bonus for us as a talking point for Medicare for All. And I'm sure, Rose and Ben, you have something to say about that as well. Um, I would just add on, I mean, the only way we're going to save rural health care is if we enact Medicare for All. I mean, it's literally the only thing, because right now all you have going on is this idea of this competition, you know, between health systems and they're gobbling up all of the independent or community hospitals and then they switch them out and then they close them down. We have women, as I know you guys do too, in your homes on the East Coast that are traveling 50, 60 miles in labor to deliver a baby because there are deserts, literal maternal labor delivery deserts in rural communities in Minnesota. And when you instead, as you said, Stephanie, when instead you put together a budget, a global budget for hospitals based on the health needs of the community instead of where they can find density of a population. And by the way, preferably a population of private pay patients. So they're much more interested in, um, you know, we just had a couple of hospitals in my city, St. Paul, Minnesota, close, in downtown, closed down. And these were these were hospitals that primarily served communities of color, you know, uh, folks who are suffering from mental health issues, um, substance abuse issues. And unfortunately, again, just because of how our system set up, most of those, particularly with mental health issues and substance abuse, are accessing healthcare through Medicaid. Medicaid, the way it's set up, does not reimburse at a higher, as high a cost, excuse me, as the private pay insurance does. And it just becomes this insane system when you are literally, your competitive edge is actually going for patients that have private insurance and ignoring the, the needs, the health needs of the community. But that's what's happening. And the only way we fix that is through Medicare for All. Believe me, the hospitals are going to be just fine under a global budget. The rest of the world does it that way. It's not going to hurt the, you know, the salaries of, of nurses and doctors. All of that stuff gets negotiated out under this system. And the reality is, is they're going to have a whole bunch of cash that they're not going to have to spend on the department called billing. You know, I mean, what is it? Duke University's got like 900 and some beds in their hospital and 1,600 people just to process bills. That's a lot of administrative overhead. We had a, a physician here in Minnesota. He ran his own business, you know, independent, but just for, you know, the sake of it, because he's he's a supporter of Medicare for All, he said, what if we did just switch all over to, and left Medicare reimbursement rates exactly what they are right now? Could I do okay? in my business. Would I, because a lot of times we hear that, right? Oh my gosh, if you just go to Medicare reimbursement rates, the hospital is going to go upside down. We'll have to close. And he found out that, yeah, no, I actually wouldn't have to close. I, I would, I would come out even at the worst case scenario, because I suddenly don't have to pay for people to do processing of bills and all of that. I could have an additional physician in my practice. I could have another RN that I could hire. So uh, that is just, it's red herring sort of stuff. Yeah. This is how we save rural healthcare. Sorry. Steph, go ahead. No, no, exactly. I mean, exactly what you're saying. Billing is causing rationing in the healthcare system. And, uh, you know, there was a second question uh, that we got that was sort of related to this one. So I thought I'd just tack it on and see if you had anything else to say. Um, some of us in Minnesota. Oh, sorry. This is from Steve Danis. Jan Janisek. Danis. Yes, his name yes. is. I know um, Steve. <laughs> I'm sorry for butchering your name. 
in Minnesota. Um, so some of us in Minnesota are building the movement through educating the more rural parts of the state, especially communities with hospitals. The financial struggles they have is forcing them to close or consolidate with big hospital chains. How do we educate these conservative communities to the problem and Medicare for all is the solution? And I know we just talked really a lot about like, you know, the actual details that are you know, this dynamic between hospitals and payment and everything else that makes it so hard to, to actually have an equitable healthcare system. But if you had any insight on how to talk to conservative communities in Minnesota. Well, I've done it with Steve, actually, because he comes from a, a rather rural conservative area, although his community brought us Paul Wellstone. I want you know because he's that's where the college is where uh, Senator Wellstone actually taught. The great historical conservative. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> exactly. Here's the thing. I mean, you know, we know that the the three things educate, agitate, and organize, right? So education is a big part of organizing. And it's and organizing is all about meeting people where they're at. So when you have someone, you know, in a more conservative rural area that asks that those types of questions, you have to meet them where they're at and you have to basically ask them, so how is this system working for you now? Are you upset that the hospital down the road from you got closed and you have to now travel 45 miles in order to access any kind of health care? You know, get regular routine checkups like colonoscopies or mammograms or any of that kind of thing? And if so, then let's talk about how do we resolve that and what's a good way in which to do that? Because isn't it really about just making sure that we are providing those services to the people in the community where they need it and um, can actually access it in, at a reasonable time frame and for an affordable price? So how do we get there? And then we start talking about the options and see where, you know, some of it is ideological and we're just never going to get there, right? We have to understand some people are just never going to believe that this is the, the right system. We, we, we did a forum here once where we had a guy just, you're taking away my choice if I don't get to choose insurance, you know, a company uh, plans. And we said, but isn't it about trying to have a choice of your doctor and your hospital and clinic? Isn't that the more important thing? And he was like, no. It's absolutely not the more important thing. I'm not going to ever convince this guy, right? Probably. <laughs> so you just you just accept that and you move mm -hmm. on to those who want to continue to engage in that um, conversation with you. Yeah, I agree. And uh, we have we had three questions, uh, actually maybe more about sort of paying for Medicare for All. So I'm just going to kind of lump them together. We had folks from Idaho, Illinois, and Maine who asked questions similar to um, how much is needed for Medicare for All healthcare. Uh, I figure 5% tax on income would do it. What is your idea? Someone from Illinois saying one of the criticisms for Medicare for All is funding. How do you propose to pay for Medicare for All and keep costs under control? From Maine, what's the best answer to people who kvetch about the potential cost? I love the use of kvetch. So I think there's a, a few answers to this. I'll take a really quick stab at it and everyone else can, can jump in on this as well. The two bills we have in Congress for Medicare do not include the financing language. And there's there's good reasons to keep that out of the bill for now. Uh, the idea is when you have enough votes to move Medicare for all through the, the committee, then you, you build the financing through the committee process, essentially, which is uh, many, many, many bills do work this way. And if, if you build financing into the bill right now, it's going to be out of date in approximately six months anyway. You're going to have to do it all over again. But there have been a lot of really good studies about how we could pay for this. And there are a lot of options. And there's some trade-offs how you do it. Bernie Sanders released a white paper when, when he first introduced his bill last session with a couple of different options for how you pay for it. And there was also a really good study done by Perry, the Political Economic Research Institute, on 
how we could fund a Medicare for all system. And the short answer they found is that a, a Medicare for all system, the whole healthcare system would cost about $3 trillion a year. That sounds like a lot of money, but it's actually less than what we are currently paying for healthcare. And the good news is that we are currently already paying about two thirds of that publicly through tax finance dollars. So you don't have to raise money for most of the healthcare system. We are already raising it and already spending it. So that's money that we raise through med for Medicare, for Medicaid, these public dollars for federal employees. You don't have to raise that, that money. It's already, it's already there. It's already in the government coffers. So it's really the last one third or about $1 trillion that you have to raise. But guess what? We are also already spending that one third. We are just spending it privately, either for health insurance premiums that we pay to private insurers, or we're paying it out of pocket in co-payments and deductibles. So that's the money that you are, you don't have to raise it really, you just have to redirect it from where it's currently spending. And instead of giving it to a private insurance company, you're giving it to this public accountable healthcare system that is actually going to guarantee your healthcare. So to me, that's that's kind of the basic answer. And again, there's, there's all sorts of fi financing proposals most of them involve replacing that the, the premiums that most employers pay and employees pay with some sort of a payroll tax or a business tax. So that would be literally just replacing the money that you're already giving to private insurers and through the employer system, giving it to the public national system. And ideally, you would be paying less. Most employers would be paying less, except maybe the really, really big ones who are wealthy. And then you can pay for it through some mix of taxes on the high income and the wealthy, uh, which I think is, is how basically everything should be paid for these days in America until we get back to anything resembling the post-war period where the wealthy had to actually contribute to our our, our country and the system that they're making money off of. So that's the, the basic answer. I, I, you know, we won't have time to like dive into all the nitty gritty details of financing, but there are great studies out there that show how exactly how to do it. And in terms of talking points, if you're just talking to a regular person, you know, you don't want to go into the nitty gritty details of financing plans. I think you're going to lose people already. Uh, to me, I think it's really about we are already paying for the, the whole healthcare system. We're just handing our dollars. We're being taxed by private insurers who are trying to make as much money as possible. That's why your premiums go up all the time and your costs go up all the time. And they make money by not giving you care. That's why we all experience denials of care. I certainly have for important medical care that I needed. And so instead, we want to give the same dollars, actually few dollars to a publicly accountable national public system that is going to guarantee our healthcare. So that's the short answer, I think, to financing. I don't know how y'all would, would answer this one. I don't know if I have a lot to add. I did see someone was making a comment, you know, redirect is the right word. I also a lot of times say it's a reallocation right. of precious healthcare dollars to mm -hmm. actual healthcare. I, you know, here I live in the land of United Health. They are in our backyard and um, the CEO of United Health makes you know, I mean, one year he brought in something like $66 million in a single year, that's salary and stock options and all of that kind of stuff. And my question is, who did he heal right. for $66 million? I can way. tell you, it's a big fat goose egg. It's nobody. Um, and I don't know a single doc or nurse 
who's making $66 million for actually healing people. Let's get the money into the hands of the people who are actually providing health care. And that's how we reallocate. And the other thing I would bring up, and I, I noticed someone was saying in the chat too about, you know, controlling costs. I mean, you're not going to control costs under this current system. There is nothing that we have done. I mean, the, the ACA had some absolutely positive things in it, mostly the expansion of Medicaid, quite frankly, and, and some of the real insurance abuses, right, got taken care of the pre-existing condition nonsense. All of that stuff is nothing but business model way of trying to prevent people from getting access to care because they can't make money unless they take in more money than they pay out. And that means denying care. And for a healthcare system, that is immoral and inhumane. And But the ACA didn't have any type of proven cost containment. So when I hear you know elected officials say, well, I, I don't know. I don't know about Medicare for all, but I could do something that's like Medicare extra or a, a public option or whatever. My first question is, how does that control costs? And I don't want to hear about how, well, we'll subsidize someone's health insurance premium. Uh-huh. That's just putting more cash in the bank account of the insurance company, not necessarily providing a, you know better access to care in reality with high deductibles and all that craziness. Um, so it, it you've got to get to how do we control costs? And that is about pricing. You know, Uwe Reinhardt used to say, right, it's the prices stupid. Um, And that's exactly what it is. It's the prices. And we've got to get control of that. And we can't do that under any other system other than a Medicare for all type system. And I would just end by saying, you know, we always say there are four things we know for sure about a Medicare for all single payer system. It saves money because every study has proven this. It saves money. It improves quality. It covers everyone. And most importantly, especially to nurses, it saves lives. Is that it? That's all we get for this <laughs> free program? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I'll, I think y'all covered it, but I'll just add that, you know, at the state level as well, I mean, what it just means that we pay so much. It's not just like, okay, we pay so much more and that's it. It's like, we actually have obviously limited budgets to pay for all the things that governments have to do. And so when we pay a lot for healthcare, way more than everybody else, then we're also have less money to pay for teachers and other public services that we desperately need. And so, you know, we have to think also just about the trade-offs of propping up this for-profit system that costs so much more than everything else is is also just coming at the cost of other public services that, you know, that are essential to living a healthy life. All right. So question, assuming Medicare, this is from, sorry, Philip Ratcliffe in Oregon, assuming Medicare for all becomes law, would it be modeled on traditional Medicare or Medicare Advantage? Easy one. Softball question. <laughs> Rose, you want to take a step? <laughs> Yeah, there's no question on this one. I mean, it's, of course, traditional Medicare because uh, Medicare Advantage is that's the privatization of our Medicare system. It's not a good thing what's going on with Medicare Advantage. And so, no, 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 we do not need the middlemen. They're superfluous. We don't need them in the middle of our system, just again, sucking out those healthcare dollars and not putting them into actual healthcare. So without a doubt, we would model it after the traditional. But again, even the traditional right right now is an 80-20 plan, right? It means 80% is paid, 20 could be out of pocket, which is why people have to buy those gap or supplemental plans to, you know, 
to cover uh, and wrap around Medicare. And of course, we don't include things in Medicare, which I know Bernie and others are fighting for uh, right now to at least do immediately, which is to cover dental and vision. I mean, how do we say that, you know, our teeth aren't medical, right? Or our vision and hearing aren't medical. There was there was a, uh, a RAND study done, and it was a number of years ago now, but I would bet it hasn't changed one bit, where they literally asked people who were uninsured, what's the first thing you would do if you had access to all types of medical care? And they overwhelmingly said, go to the dentist, you know, because people... Like half of Americans don't have dental insurance. Right, right, exactly. So we obviously have to improve it and we can do that. And that is what the Medicare for All bill is all about. This is a great segue actually into the next question from, uh, and another name pronunciation check might be needed from you, Rose. Carol Engelhart in Minnesota. Am I saying that right? Okay. She would like to know if we work at passing extending Medicare benefits to include all medically necessary care with no cost sharing. Would that be a doable action to get with the current Congress and, and President Biden? She wants to eliminate advantage plans, which include the private market insurers. I'll just take a, a first stab at this one. I, you know, it's so necessary, I think, in terms of getting to Medicare for all. You know, for me, um, I'm like a worst case scenario thinker. And if we don't have enough power when we, you know, go in for Medicare for all, what we're going to get is exactly, you know, Medicare Advantage for all, which I think was actually the proposal of Kamala Harris during the, the last primary. And obviously that wouldn't get us the cost savings of Medicare. It would create this two tier system, which continues to normalize being able to purchase more health insurance at the expense of others who can afford it. And, you know, just opening the door for people buying out of the system. This is like kind of a nightmare for, you know, a single payer activist ending up with a single payer that's Aetna or United Healthcare. And so I think like a necessary step to get to Medicare for all is improving Medicare and making private insurers redundant and unnecessary and, and putting them out of the Medicare business. And last podcast, we talked about a letter that was signed by 17 senators and 80 representatives asking them to improve Medicare, asking Biden, it was actually addressed to Biden, asking him, you know, in this American Families Act, would you improve Medicare itself? And then, you know, expand eligibility down. It didn't specify exactly how far, but it it talked about the benefits of expanding down to 60, then down to 55 and to 50. And that kind of surprised me, you know, as we discussed it on the last podcast, it wasn't just the usual suspects. It wasn't just like progressives. It was legislators who have not signed on to Medicare for all. They were, you know, by signing this letter, they were endorsing kind of a confrontational stance against insurance companies. Um, Because, of course, the more people who are covered, you know, through the Medicare program and the more services that are covered under Medicare reduces the strength and the relevance of, you know, Medicare Advantage or just private insurers in general. And so I think that there is some there is like increasing appetite in Congress to uh, confront, you know, insurers and push back on you know, Medicare Advantage within the system and to actually just try to make the system itself better. Are we there yet? Can we do it with Biden being Biden's, you know, proposal was just increased subsidies to private insurers uh, through the ACA? Maybe not. I don't know. What do y'all think? Yeah, I, there's, there's several interesting parts of this question. I mean, I think Shoring up Medicare, expanding Medicare's coverage, putting an out-of-pocket limit, all these things I think I would count as kind of wins towards Medicare for all. 
Uh, not all incremental improvements in access to care, I think, are wins towards Medicare for All, but I think this would be one of them. When Stephanie and I were talking before this podcast, I said, you know, anytime members of Congress are sending a letter to the president, they've already lost. Um, you wouldn't be sending a letter if you had enough enough votes to, to pass it. So unfortunately, I don't think it's doable with the current Congress or Biden, at least not without a lot more organizing. So even that sort of incremental step, I think, is is a little bit on the outside looking in. But it was interesting to see all these names who I think are probably our next priority list of uh, legislators who we want to try and move uh, to the next step on to Medicare for All. Medicare for Advantage, to me, politically, is a very different challenge. There are a lot of Medicare for All supporters who also support Medicare Advantage, unfortunately. I think it's one of these areas where we're going to have to do a lot of educating even with existing Medicare for All supporters between now and when we win Medicare for All to avoid the scenario of, of kind of replicating the Medicare advantage. But in terms of like public opinion, isn't it actually really great that we actually already have Medicare as a vehicle and all you have to do, you don't have to threaten Medicare advantage at all explicitly. You just have to expand Medicare to cover those benefits. And therefore you don't actually end up, I mean, of course there's a political discussion about like whether legislators who are receiving money from insurers are going to accept that and go with that. But in terms of like, as a, you know, public opinion on the matter, I don't think that there would be any threat perceived uh, for Medicare recipients to have, have things expanded for them. Right. No, God, no, I would hope not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So in that sense, it's like, it's easy because you don't have to apprehend insurers uh, from the public opinion standpoint. Yeah, I mean, just the you know the way it works right now. Obviously, if you are eligible for Medicare, you can choose either a Medicare Advantage plan or you can choose traditional Medicare with a wraparound plan if you want one. And because Congress intentionally overpays Medicare Advantage, sometimes they actually can give you a better deal as a senior than traditional Medicare would for you. So this is, makes it very difficult for us. We can't like name and shame anyone who's taking Medicare Advantage if it's just a better plan for them. Problem is the structural problem that we are literally throwing money at private insurers to waste and overpaying them, paying them more than we pay into the public system. And that's why Medicare Advantage has been growing. And we really can't keep this overpaying system, especially as we're going forward. So, I would just add to that, Ben, I think what you said is really important in regards to the fact that there are some incremental sort of pathway steps that are actually probably even necessary as we think about transitioning an entire, what, 18% of our GDP, you know, of a system, it's probably not going to be able to happen just, you know, the, the day they pass it, the next morning, we all wake up with a Medicare for all card. And that is why in both of the bills, it's so good that there are transition periods that really begin to do just what you said. And I think that that's what's most important to me is thinking through whether it's dropping the age down of Medicare. I'd also like to see, um, and I think I think it is in Pramila's bill from birth or Bernie's, I don't remember which or maybe both, but from birth to 18, immediately, you know, go on to Medicare, uh, and then you just keep compressing, right, <laughs> to the point where we're all in that system. And you have in, in the meantime, you've built up the infrastructure that you will need to be able to actually run that system and run it properly. Yeah, and we did have some questions about transitions that I don't know if we'll have time to get into, but I'm hoping we have them at, at the bottom of our list here. So I wanted to get to a question, of, uh, some, a couple of questions about organizing, our favorite topic here on the podcast. Uh, this is a question from Paul Rogers in California. Are you going to conduct a grassroots petition drive? We can all knock on doors or sit in front of grocery stores to get 
signatures on petitions, then present 10 million signatures or more to our representatives. How about town halls nationwide? Anyway, I, I love the big numbers and big thinking here. Stephanie or Rose, do you want to talk to petition? Um, I, I don't know if Healthcare Now as an organization, as a national organization, is thinking about um, launching any of that with a campaign. I mean, obviously, National Nurses United, our uh, national affiliate from, from MNA, is working hard on all kinds of different ways in which to organize on the ground, right, to, to involve um, and have those one-on-one -on -one conversations again at the door. Find out how this current system is or isn't working for people and what they really want a healthcare system to look like. And then you can start to engage them and well, we might just have a, a policy that could work and and bring them into the movement that way. Uh, I haven't heard per se of an you know a petition as in going door to door or uh, out at farmers markets and all of that good kind of stuff. I mean, I think there are many of us throughout the country that have various statewide organizations that are part of healthcare now in regards to our relationship, and we're certainly out there doing that one on one organizing on a regular basis. I don't know that there is a necessarily a a current campaign to get those 10 million signatures. There's always, always campaigns to have healthcare forums, town halls. I just did one in Minnesota. The Democratic Party is the DFL, the Democratic Farmer Labor Party. And I was asked along with our state senator, who is the, who carries, is the author of our state, you know, single payer bill. And we actually did a healthcare forum that was um, sponsored by the platform committee of the party and, you know, to take a real deep dive into policy, but also to talk about messaging, narrative and organizing and bringing more people into the movement. So those things are going on all the time. And we were blessed with having Representative Ilhan Omar um, here in Minnesota. And a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic, uh, Ilhan did a town hall and and, and Jay, um, Representative Jayapal was here. It was the one and only time I got a chance to meet her and I was asked to serve on the panel. We had like 300 and some people show up at that forum and it was it was incredible. There was no lack of support for Medicare for All once we really took the dive and started answering people's questions one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, and what I love about this question is it, it's asking about what we call base building in the organizing world. And base building just means we have a bunch of activists, but we're not enough really to, to accomplish the organizing task in front of us, whether that's getting our legislator on board or getting our senator on board. So base building just means you have to really or orient yourselves to talking to more people and getting more people involved in our movement. Petitions are is one way to do that. We had a, uh, I remember our New York group years and years and years ago did this campaign that I really loved called the 100 by 100 campaign. They got 100 activists to collect 100 signatures for Medicare for All in just one summer, and that meant at the end they had 10,000 signatures, which is actually quite a lot of people. So that is one way to do base building. You can have people sign, and then you reach out to them after they've signed and see if they want to get more involved and become active on Medicare for All. There's also, we have a bunch of groups who do story-based campaigns. They ask people, they do a healthcare survey and ask people about their experiences with the healthcare system, which is a nice way to, instead of going out and preaching at people, you go out and you listen to people. We are going to be running an online uh, petition. You know, one challenge is we're still kind of in COVID times and, you know, public health regu regulations do vary from state to state. So we, as a national organization, we are still not pushing out that people are doing in-person you know, face-to-face -face organizing quite yet, but I'm hopeful that we'll get there soon. So we're kind of starting with some online outreach stuff, but I think the question is right on in that our movement as a whole has to move towards base building because we, we just don't have enough people. We don't have enough political might yet to win this in a lot of districts. 
So what happens sometimes is people throw the same group of activists at the same legislator again and again and again, and that can be very demoralizing and it can get be very frustrating and you can be like, we've asked them and you can start feeling hopeless about it. But the real answer is that you don't, you need to get more than the same group of activists. You need to get a much bigger group of activists and groups to approach that legislator. And that involves doing a different type of organizing, which is what we call base building. So great, great, great question. Um, do we want to talk about- Oh, yeah, ben, could I just throw something on there too? Um, uh, you know, here in Minnesota, one of the things we're really, uh, really concentrating on too, and, and you know this, Ben, because you're helping us do some of this work. Um, I'm on the board of Healthcare for All Minnesota as well, and we are looking to bring together, as you talk about base building, like organizations that uh, this might not be, it probably isn't their number one issue, but the question becomes, um, does it fit? Does it fit for them in the sense that how would their constituents, how would their mem members' lives be different if they didn't face what we face in this healthcare system with, you know, fear of bankruptcy or, you know, not having the money to be able to take care of our needs or, or again, rural, not having access because everything has been closed down. And how would, where is the intersectionality in the work that they are doing? If they happen to be in the environmental justice movement, if they happen to be working around issues of poverty or um, affordable housing, how do we go ahead and, and show that health? is impacted by all of those things and that this is something that would really make a significant change even for the issues that they're working with. So just throwing that out as well. Yeah, and I'll just say that petition gathering is kind of, this is sort of the same thing that Ben was saying, but it's really good for some things and then maybe a little less effective for other things. I think that legislators care what their constituents think. And so if you want to put pressure on a legislator, then you're going to have to somehow, whatever form it takes, you're going to have to prove that this petition or whatever came from a constituent that's a little harder to do with like signatures. And I, I don't know if like, I, I'm sure that a, a mass groundswell of petitions from all across the country would have some impact on legislators, but really they, they're, they care about their bosses the people who have the ability to put them in or out of power and that's their constituents. And so when we talk about doing, you know, grassroots petitions for Medicare for all work, I really think that it's super useful as a base building exercise. And to ensure that it's a base building exercise, you have to make sure that you're getting legible email addresses, legible phone numbers, that you have an infrastructure where you can actually follow up with people, not like a month after you collected the signatures, but immediately so that they have contact with you again, so that you can start to bring them into the organization. And that all requires really a lot of setup and a lot of intentionality about what you're going to do with the signatures and how you're going to move people up a ladder of engagement. And that is the way I think you're going to really build power within your districts, because I think it is all within the district. I mean, I think that there's definitely something to be said if like a huge groundswell of support could come up for Medicare for all. But I, I think ultimately doing local work and building the base in your local area is going to be the thing that wins us Medicare for all. Right. And the subtext there, I think that Stephanie is pointing out, is that the petitions themselves have very little impact. Most legislators don't really care, even if you hand them uh, a sheet with 10,000 signatures. Uh, they're not quite sure how you got it. Phone calls, in-person meetings, those are the things that really, really impact them. Petitions, part of the problem is it's easy to buy petitions. So they don't petition signatures. You can either pay signature collectors or you can do these pay for these big online ones. So I think they tend to discount those. And we also got questions about organizing a big march in Washington. I think legislators tend to discount marches as well. It doesn't have the impact that some folks think they have 
thinking back on you know the civil rights movement. So you have to really know kind of what is going to impact your legislators. But petitions can be great for base building, even if they have very little impact on the legislator. So. All right, so, so I'm seeing now we are almost in 50 minutes. We didn't even get to our eight or nine questions I that know. we were hoping to cover, There's much less the, the backup 20 questions, but I guess this is the way of things. Maybe we need to do more mailbag episodes so we don't have this huge backlog of questions that people have. So we will commit to doing more uh, mailbag questions. So I just want to thank our podcast team, Sarah Sang, our producer, our manager. I want to thank Jerry Katz, again, writer. I want to thank Zandra, who's also an audio editor for this episode. So shout out to the overall podcast team. Thank you, Rose, so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Fun. Bye. Bye.